Hi, folks. It's Derek Chalet of GMF, and I'll be your host in this week's episode of Post-Pandemic Order. I'm thrilled that our guest this week will be U.S. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. Alyssa's my good friend, and she was elected to Congress in 2018, and she's quickly emerged as one of the bright new leaders in the Congress, especially on national security issues. She came to Congress after a long career working on many of the toughest national security questions at the CIA and at the White House and at the Pentagon, where I had the pleasure of working with her. Given this experience, she's no stranger to crisis, and she's been responding to the COVID pandemic with great skill and energy, helping medical professionals in her district get the supplies they need and helping small businesses get desperately needed assistance. And so given this experience on the ground in Michigan, a state that's been hit particularly hard by this pandemic, and given her time working the most difficult national security issues recently, she has unique insights into this pandemic and how it's playing out, how it's changing our daily lives, but also has really interesting thoughts on the larger implications for the transatlantic relationship and the U.S. role in the world more generally. And so we talked about these questions and more, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. If I can't get masks or gloves or gowns for my nurses to keep them from getting this very virus that they're trying to fight... That has a national security angle to it. Okay, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How have you been spending your days? You've been out of Washington for a while now, coming back for votes and thrust really onto the front lines in one of the hardest hit states in this COVID crisis in Michigan. So talk about what's going on and how you've been trying to respond to it. Yeah, you know, I would say sort of the experience over the past six weeks has really, every 96 hours, it's something different. I mean, certainly in the in the early days of sort of mid-March, when we started to realize how badly Michigan was being hit, um, it really turned into sort of emergency task force response, reorganizing my team to deal with the absolute flood of constituent calls coming in, um, people terribly afraid um, for themselves and their loved ones. Yeah. And then, of course, the healthcare providers, which is hearing from nurses and doctors and their families about how, you know, all the nurses on a shift were sharing a mask or how they didn't have enough gloves and they were reusing their gloves and how scared they were for their own health. So honestly, just sort of out of necessity, I got heavily into the sort of fight to get personal protective equipment. And because we didn't have a, a national strategy, a federal strategy on this, and because when we opened up the national stockpile and got our portion, it was a fraction of what we asked for, of what we were expecting. I think it was a quarter of what we were expecting. A bunch of it was expired. I mean, it was really not in the shape that we were expecting it to be in. And because the president made very clear early on that governors were responsible for figuring this out on their own, it created, I mean, a complete Wild West scenario in getting this equipment. And that means suddenly you're talking to every guy who knows a guy who can get you stuff in China. And in the first days of the crisis, the strategy was talk to as many people as you could and put as many eggs in as many baskets as you could because you didn't know who could deliver, right? It was early days. 
Um, and um, we had, you know, we were competing against other states. I mean, we were competing against ourselves in some cases, hospital system versus hospital system. And you're calling FEMA and trying to get transportation for your equipment. You're calling customs and border and making sure the stuff can land. I mean, really, like every link in the chain, you're trying to grease it so that your nurses in your local hospital have masks while they're intubating COVID patients. I mean, that was what it was. Right. And like every marketplace, that marketplace changed. And all of a sudden, you know, the big dogs got in, right? California comes in with an order for 10 million masks at $50 million. Well, that's hard for Michigan to compete with. And we were bumped down in line, right? Bumped back. Right. Um, then FEMA got involved. And there was all kinds of monkey business going on with FEMA bumping the line. And, right. and then the Chinese, you know, there was politics. We started to get word, right. you know, that they're looking, they're they're taking their time and they're dawdling with the American orders and the British orders and the Australian orders. And who knows what was ground truth, but we fought our way through that for a good three or four weeks. Um, now that conversation has simply shifted to testing. Yeah. How do we get our hands on swabs, reagent, testing kits? Which testing kit is actually the right one to invest in? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a good 20 out there that you could invest in. Some have questionable results. So um, it's really kind of an, a Wild West scenario. And oftentimes you're advocating on behalf of your local hospitals and senior people are calling senior people to, to open things up and get things moving. Right. On the testing, as you know, there's been a lot of debate here in the U.S. about the state of our testing, whether we have enough, who's responsible for getting it. What does it look like from where you sit in Michigan of the availability of tests and the prospect of getting more? Well, this is now our constant. I mean, we had a, a big meeting this morning with all the, the hospitals on with the, the Michigan delegation of members, both Democratic and Republican, and to hear about what their capability is. And the truth is, you know, there's a little bit of a, an illusion with testing because right now we're so heavily restricting who can get a test that there's very few people who would say, well, I, I'm, I'm over capacity in testing because we're so limiting who can actually get a prescription for a test. But in terms of being prepared to go back to work, um, we know we need to be able to have anyone who needs a test getting a test in order to go back to work. If you've got a cough, if you've got a fever and you try to walk in one of the GM plants in my district, you're going to be sent home and you're gonna, they're going to tell you, go get a COVID test. And when you comes back negative and you're feeling better, you can come back to work. But if you can't get a test, that's 14 days you're going to sit home. Who's paying for that, right? Who's covering that? And then that's one less guy on the line producing. Right. So it's really, our businesses are really struggling with the testing issue and they're getting involved. I definitely believe it's a federal responsibility to tell us which tests are the right ones that are accurate, that they uh, endorse. And there is a list, but there's new testing coming on all the time. Um, and then there's all kinds of things we're not doing to ramp up testing. For instance, you know, most research universities could be conducting these tests in their labs, the right labs, were it not for specific regulations. If we wanted, we could have Michigan State and University of Michigan testing people constantly. But because of regulation, we don't have that ability. So there's lots more we could do creatively from a federal level to ramp up testing, but we can't do that when the president and others around him are simply not acknowledging the problem. And I'm on, I'm on the Homeland Security Committee, and we get briefings every 10 days or so from the FEMA director. 
And this is why I wish Congress was actually doing virtual hearings because, you know, I'm listening as the FEMA director says, we're actually um, not utilizing all the tests that we've made available. And hearing my Republican colleagues saying, I don't know what you're talking about, but that is just factually incorrect for my state. I think the public wants to see that, but the, the administration is not acknowledging they have a problem. And I mean, as you've been hearing about how other countries are handling the test and trying to figure out why we're unable to get to where we need to be to to have an economy that's able to function in any way uh, with enough tests, what's the, what is the problem? Is it is it that there's a lack of a coherent response? Is it that there's a denial of the problem? Is it that there's it's it is too much of the wild west scenario? I mean, is there if there's something you could fix, not that there's any silver bullets here, but if there's something sure. that you could fix on this, what would it be? I mean, certainly we didn't use the time that we had between January and March to make ourselves more prepared. And we couldn't have been perfectly prepared, but we know that we had a, a sort of line of effort on a CDC endorsed test that that ended up in failure, right? And maybe that couldn't be helped, but certainly the WHO test was working, and if we had simply adopted that test and then scaled it and really ramped up with direction from the executive branch to really double down, I think we would have been in a very different situation. And then once the crisis started, I mean, you, you can't do what you need to do if the senior most leader in the executive branch is saying we have no problem and everyone who wants to get a test can get a test. So they're hamstrung to take that decisive action when they just heard the president say there's no problem. I think. If they had accepted the WHO test and then really ramped up earlier, the picture would be quite different. So getting this larger question of our national preparedness for these types of, of pandemics, and you come at this with some unique experience because at the Pentagon in 2014, you were part of the effort to lead the Pentagon's response, the U.S. Defense Department's response to the Ebola crisis in West Africa. So you had some sense of, from the military perspective, what the military could do and also perhaps some gaps in our uh, preparedness. But this crisis has obviously brought, uh, you mentioned the national stockpile, it's it's brought to light a whole nother level of lack of preparedness. I guess what's been the, mo- what was the most surprising to you when this crisis hit? And then, and in terms of thinking forward on preparedness, again, this is, getting through the testing crisis and getting through whenever there's a vaccine, making sure we can get all that out for, to prepare for the future. What's what, what are things we need to be thinking about now? Well, I'm certainly one of the most surprising things was no knowing and seeing um, that we had federal authorities that the president was choosing not to exercise. Certainly the defense production act. So explain um, that one. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, the president has a, a series of authorities that are go back, at this point, I think 50 years that allow him in the ta- in the in times of crisis or war to mobilize production in the United States by basically guaranteeing confirmed federal orders for that equipment um, or that whatever that factory produces, and then the the authorities basically ensure that that order goes to the top of the line. All the suppliers know that that's the priority. It just um, it is a, a very powerful tool. And what was so strange is that we knew we had that tool. I mean, the executive branch certainly knows that they have that tool. And I'm watching, I'm here in Michigan, I'm watching GM team up with Ventec to start making ventilators. I'm watching Ford link up and start to make ventilators. And 
the president would not exercise his authority to guarantee orders. Right. So we have our manufacturers doing truly their patriotic duty. I mean, in Michigan, we really believe, we call ourselves the arsenal of democracy. Like we converted in World War II our car facilities into tank facilities. Mm-hmm. We made, a, we our manufacturing base has direct value to our ability to fight this fight. And the president just wouldn't use those authorities. And there wasn't a good explanation that I could find. And I it was just shocking because right. at a minimum, the president understands supply and demand and business. Um, and so that one really surprised me. In terms of going forward, I mean, I think for me, one of the early takeaways was just there's some supply chains that have national security importance. Right. You know, like if there's a delay in getting our shipment of like ladies razors, like that's fine. You know, no one's impacted really by that. But if I can't get masks or gloves or gowns for my nurses to keep them from getting this very virus that they're trying to fight, that has a national security angle to it that I think we have to recognize and have to correct for in the future. Same thing, by the way, with pharmaceuticals. Right. I mean, can you imagine if we figured out that there was a certain drug that we really needed in the middle of one of these crises and we couldn't get it because the supply chain was in China or India or somewhere else? So you're seeing the military very quietly move in this direction. The Secretary of Defense is saying, huh, we need to make sure certain medical supplies and pharmaceuticals are made in America so that if the warfighter needs them for war— they can get them in short order. Right. And I think we need to just recognize that there's a difference between masks and gowns and pharmaceuticals and ladies' razors and make appropriate law in response. And is that that's something you've proposed? Yeah. So we're really looking at this and, and doing a deep dive into it, but we've proposed a series of bills, and it's basically the Made in America Medical Supply Chain Act. It's not reinventing the wheel in the, in the Pentagon. As you probably know, we have very strict buy American provisions, mm-hmm. and that's because we never wanted another country to build our planes and build our tanks, because if we need to go to war, we got to be able to go when we want to go. And you just cut and paste the same Buy American provisions, and you put it on the national stockpile. You create a market in the United States for American manufacturers to produce at least a portion of those very important supply chains, medicines and medical supplies. I mean, that feels like something that should be able to get bipartisan support. Yeah, we have a lot of bipartisan interest right now. We've gotten some good traction. People, I think, see the need. Most of the feedback we've gotten, we're working with some Republicans to try and bring them on as original co-sponsors, is, you know, they just don't want to move too fast. I mean, I think that's that's the only, they're not questioning the value of it. And, you know, the other one that's been surprisingly popular with people is once we realized we had this gap, our manufacturers and our 3D printing community, like, jumped into action to retool and create face shields and gowns. I mean, amazing stories are going to come out of this. And and the industrial Midwest, is, I think, is, like, really representing itself well in this crisis. Right. So something that your state's been really grappling with, as we all are, is the discontent with the lockdown and the challenge of how to reopen in a safe way to get our economy back going. And there's been some very well-publicized protests in, in Michigan, in your district, against the governor and, and some of the decisions that, that the Michigan governor's made about the lockdown. And just talk about from where you sit. I mean, you've, you're talking to const- your constituents all the time, uh, hearing from them about their concerns, both health and economic concerns, and, and how to try to navigate this. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're all 
going through this once in a generation type of change. And we all know that our economy is is and will continue to really suffer. And people are watching their businesses, everything they've invested in their entire life just go down the drain. I mean, it's it's painful. And, you know, the governor had to take really quick action. And if you saw some of the projections that our universities were making on the number of cases and number of deaths that we were planning to have, I mean, they would turn anyone, you know, white as a sheet. And so our governor took very aggressive early action. I applaud her for taking that early action. We have, I think, the third highest number of deaths in the country, just in front of or always kind of going back and forth with California. But California is 40 million people and we're 10 million people. I mean, per capita, we're really getting walloped. And that action, it just, it's, it's, provable. It helped flatten the curve here. And we're just starting to plateau and, and still seeing, you know, over 100 people die a day, but at least it's it's evening out. Yeah, I think our governor did take some of the most aggressive action in the country, restricting things that, you know, for instance, in Washington, D.C. or in New York had not been restricted. So construction and yard work companies and that kind of stuff got people's attention here. And so they protested. And now I have no problem with a protest right? What I really had a problem with was these people got out of their cars, right? Right. It was meant to be a a sort of operation gridlock, stay in your car. They got out of the cars. They weren't social distancing. They were putting at risk the police officers who were forced to be there and showed complete disregard for the healthcare workers who will inevitably be taking care of them or their family when they hopefully, you know, not. But risk spreading the virus. So that was difficult. And then the third element is the mixing of legitimate First Amendment protests with symbols of hate, brandishing weapons, the Confederate flag and use of the swastika as a symbol and hateful speech. and, And that kind of stuff completely, in my mind, undoes, you know, the message of a protest to to reopen earlier um, or to loosen the restrictions. So that's been disheartening. The vast majority of Michiganders are doing the right thing, staying at home, and they understand that while this may be difficult, the only thing worse than one major wave of COVID-19 is two. Okay, so I want to switch gears and, and talk a little bit about national security issues. And you've you have a unique unique background in the U.S. Congress, uh, given your career at the CIA and the Defense Department and the White House, working on national security issues, particularly for many years on Iraq. And you also now serve on the Armed Services Committee in in the House, and as you mentioned, the Homeland Security Committee. There's no question of however we come out of this, the U.S. is going to be under tremendous economic strain. It's going to have a big impact on our national security budgeting. But basically, the balance between, for example, the defense budget, which has grown significantly in the last several years, and what is going to be tremendous demands on the federal budget to help get our economy back going, and how we, we're not going to be able to do everything, and how we try to begin to think about making those trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, I think what has been hampering that discussion, at least in, in my experience with the Armed Services Committee, you know, we're doing these phone calls, conference calls, briefings with folks at the Defense Department every week, is, you know, our economy was doing really quite well right before COVID-19. And you can debate whether it was starting to plateau or not. But the truth is, unemployment was very low. Our economy, the stock market was high. I mean, people felt confident. And to go almost in a whiplash fashion from feeling very confident about the economy to feeling really nervous about where our economy is headed 
feels really abrupt to me. And I think people are still adapting to the fact that things are going to be fundamentally different. And, you know, we're coming back to Congress. We've done these four big bills. And it's like in a matter of eight or nine days, we'll pass, you know, $2.2 trillion, the largest economic recovery package in American history. Right. Um, And we're just doing it so quickly. And it's such a um, significant amounts of money that people are sort of losing its meaning right? What is $500 billion? But that is not going to go on forever. And I think the Defense Department, just like almost every other budget I can imagine, is going to have to be cut in some way. Yeah. And the question is, are we going to do these cuts in a smart way? Or are we going to give everyone a haircut, you know, and sort of regardless? And what I think we should be doing is, um, frankly, looking at smart stimulus. And smart stimulus is not just doing simple kind of jobs programs, right? I mean, I I want an infrastructure package as much as anybody else, and I think we're going to get one. But I think there's some really interesting investments that we can make that would actually help us vis-a-vis our competition with China and other major actors that would also stimulate the economy. I think you could have some real win-wins for the national security community, but only if there's someone who's thinking strategically about this moment. And I have not seen a ton of that thinking, frankly, on either side of the aisle. Yeah. And so what's an example of that? So, you know, there was a report that our former colleague Bob Work did with Eric Schmidt from Google on some ways that we are losing our competitive advantage vis-a-vis China, let's say on artificial intelligence, we know that we haven't made nearly the investment that they have in 5G, in some of the the basic sort of technological pieces where we see China pulling away from us. I think that there's some interesting opportunities to invest what will be more precious defense dollars in those items in a smart way, rather than just giving everyone a haircut and saying, great, okay, we'll we'll have a, a a lower top line without actually thinking through the strategy of it. But so, Alyssa, but, you know, having a, this is an AI workforce is a, that's a fairly elite workforce, but you're, you're clearly have in mind something that can reach a broader. Well, yeah, I mean, when you when you go to turn the AI into a tool that the military can use, I mean, it's not just, you know, electrons, you've still got to produce something. And whether that's software or hardware that's enabled by AI, you will need to produce. I mean, this is the thing as a good Michigander, things still need to be made. And I just think it's interesting to have the strategic conversation. I, ha- I don't think people are poking their heads up from the, the crisis mode quite yet. But I think what would be a real shame is if we took serious cuts to the Pentagon budget without thinking through kind of some of the potential opportunities we have to get smarter about use of our dollars. Putting on your glasses from the Pentagon and when you thought about uh, what was going on in Europe and the Middle East and managing partner relationships... What what do you see as the opportunities, perhaps, in the future as our allies are also grappling with this crisis? I mean, I think what makes this moment very unique from my perspective is historically unique is that we are all dealing with the same kind of crisis at the same time. And we are all roughly pursuing variations of the same answer. I mean, whether you talk to colleagues in Warsaw or Berlin or Paris, they're uh, all in some form of lockdown and grappling with the same kinds of questions we, we're we grappling with. Obviously, this, this crisis is bringing out 
a resurgence of nationalist kind of rhetoric, protectionist policymaking, more populist politics. But it's also bringing out a resurgence, I think, of a reflection that we're all into this together and that whether it's supply chain issues and, and the question is China versus perhaps some of our European allies, um, are there opportunities uh, that that we could be seeking here? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a crisis always exacerbates existing inequalities, existing factors that were there before, but just bit are have a microscope put on them when you have a, a pandemic. So in some ways, I mean, this is, you know, we tend to do, our, our allied relationships are always stronger when we have a common adversary and we have a common adversary. Um, so that's a good starting point from, uh, you know, in a moment when we've had, at times, some strained allied relationships, right? There's a lot of potential there. Um, I think it is clear that we do not have our house in order when it comes to dealing with international health crises, Yeah. right? Like Ebola, I mean, listen, the world will never fully understand the risk that we were facing on Ebola spreading across the world. And that's yeah. much more contagious than COVID-19 and much more deadly. And I will never forget, I mean, it's burned on my brain having a, a meeting at the Pentagon. The former head of the CDC had just been in West Africa and he flew back and he wanted to give us all a presentation because, of course, the Pentagon was resistant to getting involved in the Ebola pandemic or Ebola crisis. And he had a PowerPoint presentation, as one does when they come to the Pentagon, and he said, if we do nothing right now, we'll have a million cases by the end of the year and it'll be on all continents. And it's just, I remember I just, after months or weeks at least of fighting the Pentagon, taking up this mission, it's like I, I shifted because you realize the consequences. But the truth is the U.S. military should not have been required in order to help stem the spread of Ebola but we jumped in because there was a vacuum. We do not have a system of international global health that is reactive enough, that can be mobilized, that's agile and flexible and funded. And we saw that in Ebola and we're seeing it now. Now, leadership plays a big role. The president has not been a good partner um, and not wanted to partner with other nations in the same way. But there's also international structures that need a whole big lessons learned process mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. where we, you know, have some sort of international commission on lessons learned from COVID-19 with recommendations on how we improve as a globe. Early warning, I mean, the whole thing. So there's certainly that. I also think that in a moment where lots of people in the public are looking inward and want to be isolating themselves and not being engaged in the world, I think COVID-19 is a healthy reminder that you just can't wall yourself off from the rest of the world. I think it reminds people that we are a globalized world and we need to deal with that. We can't just turn our face away from the international community. Right. And I mean, you've, you've often said that the national security community, particularly based in Washington, needs to needs to think and talk differently about these issues moving forward, and and it's probably even more so in the wake of this crisis. Yeah, I mean, I say this in the spirit of tough love, and and in the spirit of I I am someone who grew up in the national security world, so it's from a place of love that I say this. But when I became a candidate for Congress and then a congresswoman, the national security elite have never had to explain to the public why our work is important, why these budgets are so big and why they need to be 
well-resourced. We have great, amazing institutions of learning and academia, and we go back and forth and we really think about history in important ways, but we never think about how to communicate why this stuff matters to average people's lives and their pocketbooks and their kids. And that's a real problem. And I think that there's a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic who are just hoping that maybe we can get past President Trump and then, quote unquote, everything will get back to normal. And I I think that's the wrong approach. I don't think that's reality, first of all. And then I think that's missing that we have an obligation. You know, it's not the responsibility of the average citizen to investigate and figure out why national security professionals do important work. It's our job to make our work relevant to them. Some are ahead of us. I had this amazing experience years ago at the Pentagon where I was doing a high-level meeting with the Canadians, the Ministry of Defense. And they came to the Pentagon and we had all these things to discuss and they're our closest ally. And they were doing kind of a strategic review on the Ministry of Defense. And they said, well, we've set up on our website, you know, a place you can click. And we're asking the public, what do they think the Ministry of Defense should be used for? And I remember being like, what? And they said, yeah, we're sort of crowdsourcing perspectives on this. And I was like, oh, my Lord, I have never heard of that. And we were we are so far away from doing that in the United States. We would never think of that. And I actually, now that I'm an elected official, it wouldn't be half bad to ask the public with their taxpayer dollars what they expect from their defense department. And of course, there'll be a lot of overlap. They want to be safe. Um, But man, that was an interesting difference between our countries. Well, Alyssa, we are, we're about out of time and and I want to get you back to the good work that you're doing trying to respond to this crisis. But I guess the one last question, you know, this has been a moment where we're living through tremendous hardship and you've been hearing every day from folks in your district who are suffering and need help. But it's also a moment where we see, hear stories of inspiration and we see people acting in ways that really showing a true love for others and and creativity and innovation. And so just, is there a particular story or, or, or person or hospital or something that you've really has struck you as someone really rising the occasion and showing really, reminding you what's best in us? Yeah, I mean, wow, there's so many stories. And, and honestly, certainly in the first few weeks of the crisis, it was like a roller coaster of emotion from hearing a nurse sob into the phone and then seeing like a small manufacturer, you know, of a shop of a hundred or less completely retool their, their factory. Instead of making that bolt for a vehicle, they're now making a bolt for a ventilator. I mean, just really, really amazing stuff. And, you know, watching our restaurants who are obviously going through really, really difficult times say, okay, I've got food here. I'm just going to make lunch and breakfast every single day for the the local hospital, for the healthcare workers at the local hospitals. We had a story in the Washington Post about um, trying to get personal protective equipment to our nurses. And we started hearing from people. I mean, we must have gotten 70 calls in the next day and a half from people across the country saying, you know, I know a guy who can get it. And I remember when, I mean, we had one particular Saturday where a box, a huge box was delivered to my farm and it was just a thousand KN95 masks. And someone just sent them from uh, to us. And it was like my husband and I sat there and like an assembly line 
put together 50 masks for this nursing home and 100 masks for, you know, for these first responders, all these places that have been calling us and saying, I can't get any equipment. And we just put them in Ziploc bags, got people's addresses and mailed them off. And watching the generosity of a stranger, a complete stranger, help, you know, 25 different businesses keep their people safe. I mean, that's those are the kinds of things that were happening and are happening every single hour of the day. Yeah, and that's a good reminder. And those are stories to keep us going every day. Big time. And and I must say, there's a lot of uh, um, talk in, in New York and D.C. and in our capitals in Europe about the gig economy and transitioning our economy. And I just have to say, we still need to make stuff. <laughs> And I think Michigan has really represented itself well because we still make stuff. And in many ways, we have been able to help in in this crisis in ways that other folks can't. And that has felt really good for a place that has felt often left out of the conversation on the future of work. So it's been a good community morale boost. And we came and delivered when people needed us. Well, Alyssa, thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks for your time. Uh, and good luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Telsenfreud. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.